Benjamin Franklin once said, In wine there is wisdom, in beer there is freedom, and in water there's bacteria. No bacteria here. This is On the Back Bar, hosted by Christopher Menning, an industry expert, author, and bartender who's been in the industry for over a decade. On the Back Bar is your gateway to talking to the people behind the scenes at bars, distilleries, and vineyards around the world. We'll talk to the experts in the industry about future trends, people, spirits, cocktails, wine, and everything else. So kick your feet up, pour your favorite drink, and hang out on the back bar. This is Christopher Menning. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to On The Bat Bar Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Christopher Menning, and today we have Josh Jacobs calling from America. Uh, it's so good to have you on the show, Josh. How's it going over there? Thanks for having me, Christopher. Things are fantastic here. Good, good. And we're just talking about the time difference. So uh, it's 9 a.m. In, uh, in San Diego, I believe. How's the weather at the moment? We are in the midst of May gray and June gloom. Very few know that we have inclement or what we call inclement weather here in San Diego, but a little bit of a reprieve. It's beautiful, sunny and 70 degrees. 70 degrees, lovely. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Josh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, biggest thing is about Speakeasy Co, uh, which is obviously your company uh, with alcohol brands. And uh, it's a really interesting business model. And I'm looking forward to hearing about um, how you've grown that. Um, uh, other than that, I guess we're going to hear a bit about your career history and, and sort of uh, your background. And with all my guests, I actually like to start with that. So I'm going to sit back and let you sort of take over uh, and tell us all about Josh and uh, how he got started in the industry. Yeah, it's been a journey to say the least, Christopher. Wish I could say just had a brilliant thought with Speakeasy Company, but that's not at all what transpired. It's been blood, sweat, and tears, and a roller coaster over the past, <laughs> wow, six years now. And it really goes back to college, actually, when I launched my first startup and had that initial taste of entrepreneurism. And I told myself that this is it, this is my career. However, when my co-founder and I each got full-time offers from fairly large, successful corporations, me at IBM and my co-founder at an investment bank. We said, you know what? It's kind of hard to pass this up. So we ended up shutting down our first startup in college, but I knew that I always wanted to return to it, Christopher. Okay, so you're quite heavily in tech then for quite a long time, right? How many years at IBM? Yeah, not too long at IBM, about a year and a half, but I stayed in tech for, man, another five years after that. So my background's actually in data science. So at IBM, predictive analytics and optimization, and then stayed in the analytics realm thereafter. But I was simultaneously starting to experiment again with startups. So the the first startup was Uber for the moving industry. I I dabbled in online art and fashion as well, and then slowly made my way to the drinks industry. And as I mentioned before, didn't initially have this direct-to-consumer platform that exists today. We initially launched back in 2015 as a craft cocktail subscription box. 
Oh, you did. And is that still a, a big focus, what you do, or has it changed now? It has completely changed, Christopher. So back in 2015 was the rise of the subscription box. Blue Apron and Birchbox were two entities in particular that were as, uh, inspirational for us. We saw Blue Apron take something as intimidating as whipping up a gourmet meal at home and really democratize it. And then what we loved about another company called Birchbox is this whole sample to full size elements and they were making beauty something that's typically very expensive and they were making it approachable. And we were racking our brains back in 2015 for the intersection of these two companies. And Christopher, we landed on cocktails. There really wasn't a centralized location for cocktail recipes and cocktail ingredients, and most importantly, the spirits. So we said, all right, maybe this is our big opportunity. Hmm. Okay, I get get it. And, you know, Speakeasy Co. now, so it's kind of classified as a free tier compliant e-commerce platform. Um, For the purpose of the audience, can you explain a bit more about what that entails? Absolutely. And I think one of the best ways to explain the model and why we exist is actually to walk through the series of iterations and the evolution that we went through over the course of a couple of years, pivoting from a subscription box and slowly transitioning to the model that you just mentioned today that exists today. So we had this subscription box, Christopher, and we were new to the alcohol industry, our first foray in the space. But it was a mission of ours to not just introduce subscribers to the most, to to new cocktail recipes, but to the most important ingredient in a cocktail, the spirits. So we naturally gravitated towards partnering with craft distilleries and craft spirit companies. And they were the ones educating us on the three tiered system that you have tier one, the brands, and generally speaking, the brands cannot sell direct to consumer. They have to sell to the distributors, second tier, who sell to bars, restaurants, and liquor stores, the third tier, where we as consumers in the U.S. purchase our alcohol. And this creates an enormous challenge for the brands when they have no control over their own destiny. They have to work through the distributors and rely on the distributors to sell the bars, restaurants, and liquor stores. And then the brands have no presence in the liquor store outside of the Baldwin label on a shelf which is just not enough real estate to engage with consumers, to educate them on why their brand is different than the hundreds of others on the shelves next to that bottle and indoctrinate the consumer into their brand trying to sell them. And what we see in other industries is startups and emerging brands and craft brands, they tend to focus online where they have their social media, their website, their entire digital presence to tell that story, to engage and to sell. However, in the alcohol industry, as we've talked about, we have this three tiers. So what we've seen is alcohol brands, they might try to try to scale online and try to capture attention online, but then they have to say, here are the bars, restaurants, and liquor stores where our product is available. And thus the craft brands were telling us that our subscription box was one of the best marketing vehicles that existed in the industry. And that blew our minds. Here they were trying to give us free product and uh, they were telling us that, hey, they can curate 
a experience for their target demographic and start trying to actually have some semblance of a relationship with them for the first time. And so we didn't know what, but Christopher, we knew that there was something exciting there. The, so we challenged ourselves to constantly think of creative ways to fuel the craft alcohol, the craft brand's growth. And so initial V1 was the subscription box. And V2, we said, okay, we've included a 50 ml size bottle in our subscription box for a particular distillery. Let's resell the full size bottle, going back to the birch box inspiration. And after a couple months, as you can imagine, not the most exciting e-commerce store with just a few SKUs beyond the subscription box. So we said, okay, let's not limit ourselves to past partners. V3 of Speakeasy was, let's build a craft spirit store in addition to the subscription box. So we got maybe 40, 50 SKUs live and we went back to our craft partners as we constantly do and still do today. And we said, hey guys, what do you think of our craft spirit store? And they said, outside of maybe your somewhat unique selection, this really is no better than working with Drizzly or Reserve Bar or any of the other online marketplaces since we don't have any control over the user experience, the messaging at the bottom of a product page on any of these platforms, it'll be other products. So we might be pushing traffic to our own product page and generating sales for a competitor, not necessarily an effective way to run a business, Christopher. So bear with me, we're, we're getting towards the end of the story. And thus we said, okay, how can we improve upon this market marketplace philosophy? And we said, let's build dedicated landing pages on our website, V4. We hit all the navigation and we empowered our partners to control more of the messaging. And we skinned these landing pages on our website. So it was a more seamless handoff from the brand's website to our website. And they started to drive more traffic. And we actually productized this. So at this point, Speakeasy had the subscription boxes. We had our marketplace that we had ourselves. And then we had these dedicated landing pages. And we were out there trying to sell these landing pages to, to brands saying, hey, you, you can actually be a quasi e-commerce company. And the, the last version was right around the corner. We connected with a potential partner and they said, hey, Josh, rather than a dedicated landing page on your website, what if you built us a website from the ground up? That way we had access to all of the tools, analytics and data and card abandonment emails and pixels, all the fundamental e-commerce tools as if we were selling direct to consumer, but we relied upon your compliance and fulfillment backend. And that was the Eureka moment and really helps explain why we exist. These brands have not had an opportunity to own the customer relationship, to own that data, to own their own growth. And now all of a sudden we're transforming them into e-commerce companies for the first time in the industry. Wow, I mean, um, just digesting that. I love that evolution story in a way it kind of, you, you found a solution to a problem that you didn't know existed, but the brands, you know, found it through this, um, this sort of tool you created. So yeah, what a great story. I mean, I guess the brands must be um, super happy with this sort of new technology they have now.
Absolutely. And so it, we thought it was going to be a home run, Christopher, right out of the gate. And so we got this pilot up with the first brands on this direct-to-consumer model. And right out of the gate, they started selling hundreds of bottles. And you were asking, does the subscription box still exist today? We actually made the tough decision at the beginning of 2018, after launching the subscription boxes in 2015, to sunset the subscription boxes. We just saw the light at the end of the tunnel. We thought it was so much more scalable to focus on this direct-to-consumer platform. However, in 2018, we still were pre-pandemic. E-commerce alcohol was never being talked about. There were no articles about it. And thus, we were having a really difficult time. We thought we were on something completely revolutionary, but it was a little premature for the industry. Don't get me wrong, we had a few very savvy, innovative partners sign up. But for the most part, brands were so dedicated to the decades-old prohibition-era model, hey, we got to work with distributors, then we have to do in-store samplings, that most folks weren't ready to carve out the budgets for e-commerce. Right. And, you know, you're also fixing um, a probably pretty lengthy supply chain that's probably cut in half. Um, costs as well associated with that sort of work as well. You're probably saving quite a lot of money for them in the long run. Is that something that's kind of come around? Have you noticed? Uh, yes, absolutely, Christopher. So you hit on two really fascinating points with e-commerce. One is cost. So what we've seen even before e-commerce is that a lot of small emerging craft brands were not receiving the time and attention required from their distributor. And thus, they started partnering with LibDib, Park Street, MHW, American Spirits Exchange, these very economical distribution options that instead of taking 30 points, take significantly less less, and then empower the brands to hire their own sales force. So this gave them more control. And that aligns perfectly with e-commerce as well. Hey, if you're going to be running your own e-commerce ads and driving traffic to your website, hey, if you align with one of these partners, you can save significantly. So there are definitely some cost savings with e-commerce, depending on your distribution partner. And then the other element of that is the innovation cycle. So for the last 88 years since prohibition, what would you have to do? Maybe focus groups, but ultimately you had to create product, pump it out in the marketplace, spend a ton on marketing, and then you'd have to see if that was a successful launch. However, now with e-commerce, you can focus on one specific market, you can produce a small amount of product, and you can get it into consumers' hands much more quickly, and then also get feedback from the consumers if they enjoy that product. So you can save a significant amount of time shortening that innovation cycle, and also a significant amount of money as well in trying to, to push it and promote it. Yeah, completely understand. Um, I'd like to actually talk about the brands. And uh, I think more than anything, I want to talk about um, the start of your relationship with some of these brands. I imagine you're quite close with a lot of them. When did that first start? The, the relationship has always been very deep, dating back to the subscription boxes. We've always known that the success of our business was tied to the success of the alcohol brands. 
So for us, they're not customers, they're partners. And what happened was in 2018, we, we transitioned, we pivoted from the subscription boxes to the model that exists today. And we started getting a few partners here and there. Fast forward though to uh, last March pandemic, what happens? Bars, restaurants shut down and overnight, our craft partners, uh, ones we were working with, ones that we were connected with, they lost up to 80% of their business because they were disproportionately reliant upon uh, off-premise, where, excuse me, on-premise, where the household brands are much more focused on off-premise, which would be the, the liquor store. And so these brands came to us and said, all right, well, maybe we before weren't ready to jump in head first to e-commerce. Now we don't really have a choice. We need to innovate in order to survive. And thus our business absolutely exploded. And so last March, or I guess maybe last January, we had 40, 50 partners on our platform. And today we have about 250. And so that absolutely exploded. However, a lot of these brands, a lot of these partners were again being forced to innovate and they were looking just for any solution, a new sales channel to survive and bridge the gap to the pandemic ending. That didn't necessarily mean they had the in-house expertise to really maximize our offering. What I mean by that is here are alcohol brands focused on traditional distribution and feed on the street selling for years, and all of a sudden they want to sell e-commerce. Well, that doesn't mean they necessarily have a digital marketer, or that doesn't necessarily mean they have a modern website. And so we've been on a evolution, not just putting together our platform, but an evolution on how do we best support our partners. And now all of a sudden we are pretty much a full agency where we offer customers websites as part of our standard offering. We're growth consultants, but that's even evolved into us offering digital marketing services. So at this point, we offer paid social to about 15 of our partners, and that's grown very quickly. Hey, we can be this one-stop shop. You continue to focus on traditional distribution and feed on the street and selling into bars, restaurants, and liquor stores and allow Speakeasy to own your digital business. And together, we can be this really effective partnership. Fantastic. Yeah, no, it's such a, yeah, it's such a clever way to do it for brands, um, to hire someone that can play the part where they're not strong at. So um, can we talk about some of the brands? Who do you have on? I, I've read some of them already in the list, but I'd like to hear like um, maybe about some of the first brands that joined. Absolutely. So I guess first I'll start with some of the most exciting ones, and then we can circle back and stop talk about some of the, the longest standing partners. So in terms of the, the most exciting partnerships we have, the, the first is Whistlepig. So Whistlepig joins our platform earlier this year. They're really innovative brands, a really innovative partner. And what they're proving to be really successful is to focus on their limited time offerings and unique products. What's really challenging with traditional distribution, trying to spread your product across hundreds or thousands of accounts across the country is you can't focus on limited releases and single barrels. And Whistlepig has identified e-commerce as the perfect channel to unleash their incredible creativity. So Whistlepig is constantly looking to release 
all these very unique products and they've been doing so in their farm in Vermont. And they're now starting to push these through e-commerce. And that's proving to be very, very, very successful with these premium impossible to find products. Well, if they can just focus on their shopping cart, then their fans, their most uh, diehard fans from around the country just have one location to go to online and the product gets delivered directly to their doorstep. The other partnership I think really worthwhile to note is Tesla Tequila. So that was oh, a fantastic okay. opportunity. Yeah, fantastic opportunity for us, Christopher, mm. where we did two launches, uh, both sold out. In, well, first sold out in about four and a half hours. Second one sold out in less than an hour in about 45 minutes. Wow. Tens of thousands of lightning bolt shaped <laughs> bottles at 250 US dollars a pop. My God, so okay. it was, yeah, I mean, anything that man touches turns to gold. And it was a really exciting opportunity for us to not just showcase, uh, not just put our name on the map, but to really showcase our fulfillment and technology capabilities. One of the previous Tesla launches had crashed the Tesla website. So here we are, a little startup and technology as, yes, certainly a focus of ours, but to put together a platform that could withstand that traffic right. was yeah. a, a pretty tall task. And we ended up putting together a platform that was able to process 500 transactions a second. Tesla was really, really impressed, and the entire team was really, really impressed. I mean, and I'm, it didn't crash at all. I'm impressed as well. That's that's an incredible feat because I know traffic of that magnitude can crash a website so far. So yeah, congratulations. Um, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Thank you. And so there are two components there, Chris, for tech, which we give ourselves a pat on the back for, and then the also the other component is fulfillment. So if you look around the industry, our quasi-competition is marketplaces and liquor stores. And for the Tesla tequila project, we were having tractor trailers full of tequila dropped off to be shipped. And there are not many players in the space that could handle that sort of volume. So we were really proud, not just of the technology, but to also be able to ship tens of thousands of orders over a short period of time. Incredible. Wow. <laughs> so uh, how many brands did you say you've got again? I know it's way over 140 now, right? And, and most of them are craft brands. That is correct. Yeah. So we're up close to, I think, about 250. The vast majority are smaller craft players. And going back to your, your question around some of our early partners, we had some successful brands join early on. So Horse Soldier Bourbon, Oak and Eden, 10th Mountain in Colorado. These are a couple of players that most people are probably not familiar with. And they joined our platform fairly early on in their, in their business's life cycle. And e-commerce played a very important component for their growth. And they saw e-commerce as a way to kind of capture 
distributors' attention. They viewed e-commerce as a way to, to gain data and identify states to jump into next. And they viewed it, as we've already talked about, a way to get limited time offering and innovative products in consumers' hands and evaluate if that was a product they wanted to invest heavily with. And what we saw is, for example, we're putting together a case study and we've done some press releases with 10th Mountain. Last January, they had, so January, excuse me, 2020, to be more clear, they had $3,000 or so, three dollars $5,000 in sales. And by the end of the year, they had eclipsed $60,000 in December in that single month. And so that just shows if you really hunker down and strap in and, and focus that e-commerce can be a very successful sales channel, even for small emerging craft players. Mm, completely agree. <clears throat> and I've got one more question about this, and then I want to ask um, a little bit about the sort of logic behind pivoting, actually, because I think that might be an interesting topic. But uh, to start, um, so I'm wondering, once you've got this e-commerce platform set up and it's ready, it's live, What's the, the target audience? How do you target um, the customers? What methods do you give the brands? Great question, Christopher. And it's something that we discuss day in and day out with our partners. How do you get your product in front of consumers? And the easiest answer is going to be paid social, at least how you're going to draw folks in. But what we've seen is it's not as simple as selling a watch or a pair of pants where you put up an advertisement, someone sees it, they like the way it looks, and they purchase it. Alcohol is much more experiential. The bottles, sure, might be somewhat unique, and some might have a design worthy of purchasing, like Tesla Tequila's Lightning Bolt. But outside of that, you really want to know about the tasting notes and the distillery and the way it's produced and the ingredients. So it's much more, as I mentioned, experiential. What we are constantly recommending our partners is not put up advertisements, purchase our product now. It's more about learning. So you put up an advertisement, you try to pull them into your website, and that's where you have to go through uh, education and indoctrination. And it's absolutely vital after running a paid social advertisement Hey, you might not be getting a first click order, but let's at least capture that email address. All of a sudden, something that these brands have not been able to leverage in, in the past is the customer data and the first party data. Once you get that email address, now you can build a automated sales funnel. You can put them through a series of education and content so they buy into the story and the brand's mission and their purpose, at which point, that's when a consumer would be ready to purchase. And so that's typically how we recommend our partners approach this. It's not just, hey, buy our tequila or buy our vodka. It's come learn more about our brand and our journey and our mission. And then once you have their email address, you're beginning a long relationship and hopefully one that's going to start with a purchase and table stakes is you have good product. So virtually all of our partners have amazing product. And once you've brought them in to your consumer base, then you try to get them to purchase once a quarter. You start selling them merchandise and limited time offering. And so it can be a really successful relationship over time if approached correctly. 100%. Completely agree. It is definitely about building those relationships. Uh, and in 
in essence creating recurring revenue but from loyalty so yeah no that's great information there um so going on to pivoting um and i, I think this is interesting because um in business sometimes it's needed and uh, you pivoted quite a lot um still within the same uh, sort of scope of, of what you wanted to do but your business model i guess has changed a lot can you tell the audience a bit about um why or times that came up and you knew it had to happen or or the importance of pivoting um, when it's needed. Certainly, Christopher. And what it comes down to is our dedication to constant experimentation and listening to the data. It really goes back to my analytics, my data science career. We like to think we're smart, but ultimately it's not about us. It's what our partners want and their consumers want. And so we were just constantly allowing the data to dictate our path. And so when we were putting the subscription boxes together, we said, okay, let, let's just get live and let's get live as fast as possible. And I think that's a really important uh, also approach is minimal viable product. Just get to market and then allow the market to dictate. And so that's what we did. We got the subscription boxes live and we were just constantly looking for other revenue streams. It wasn't about perfecting the way the subscription box opens. It wasn't about perfecting the unboxing experience. It was, let's constantly look for new revenue streams. And you're asking Christopher about our relationship with partners and these brands. And that's really been absolutely essential to us. And that's been essential to our growth. They were the ones originally giving us all sorts of ideas around how can we support them and ultimately, they were the ones who came up with the idea of this whole direct-to-consumer platform and bringing it off the Speakeasy website. So we've been constantly experimenting and testing. And if a test proves successful, then we do the next test in that direction and we continue to see where it goes. And we try to hold no biases on our end and hold on to anything. And that's why we ultimately sunsetted the subscription boxes and moved on. The data was telling us we had a much better idea. And in hindsight, absolutely right. With 250 partners and growing and being at the forefront of this digital transformation, if we had just been stuck on the subscription boxes, I don't even know if we'd be around today. Right, right. Is it, um, there's a phrase, kill, I think it's kill my darlings, I think, uh, you know, trying to let go of something you're passionate about or st still care about uh, for the good. Do you have that about subscription boxes? Do you miss it? I, I do not miss it, Christopher. It was actually <laughs> an extremely complex business to right. support. Every single month, we had to come up with an entirely new product get it through the supply chain, source all the ingredients. So forecasting was difficult, getting access to product was difficult. So it was very challenging to support, but we still love subscriptions. And we're actually revisiting the whole idea in, in two ways. The first much more near term is we're gonna be offering subscriptions as part of our white label shopping cart solution for our partners. Hey, right now we integrate a shopping cart into our partner's website to sell their existing SKUs. Well, now all of a sudden, Whistlepig could start a whiskey of the month club. And rather than having to get a consumer to purchase every single month, they could just sign up once, put their credit card in, and they're on the recurring subscription. 
And so that's one way in which we are going to be revisiting the subscription boxes very soon. And we actually already work with one subscription company called Rackhouse Whiskey Club. And so I guess in, in some regards, we are supporting a subscription box. And then I would expect Speakeasy at some point to, to roll out our own subscription down the road. That, that's a ways off, but subscriptions are really successful for a reason. And we did enjoy that business model, but we're having a ton of fun and we're experiencing a ton of growth with what we're focused on today. I Yeah, I, I do like the subscription model. I do agree though, um, it must have been a very uh, tough thing, especially with the cocktails and trying to, uh, well, just the production method itself. Uh, I'm just trying to research now. Um, I don't know if you know, there's a program called Dragon's Den in the UK. Um, and it's a business um, pitch program where you go in as the, the business dragon, so you have to pitch your business idea. But recently, um, uh, a very successful uh, couple of bartenders, Tristan Stevenson um, and his partner, they actually um, got investment from the dragons for a whiskey subscription model in the UK. I'm trying to find the name. Did you hear about this? or? No, I haven't heard about it, Christopher. I'll try and find it <laughs> because I think it's uh, a little bit relevant. But I think you're right. I think people like that sort of thing. Um, I would do as well. I'd love to have a sort of a whiskey of the month or a spear of the month that I would have in the post if it came with the right information. And, and yeah, it's something to add to the collection, right? Certainly. Make sure you're getting uh, unique products to continue adding to your bar. But a big component for subscription is going to be that story. So Rackhouse Whiskey Club, who we work with right now, it's not just about the bottle. It's really about the story of the partner that they're highlighting in that box. And I think that's going to be really important for anyone trying to launch a subscription that it's an opportunity to strengthen the relationship with the consumer. It's not just about increasing revenue. Mm, No, I completely agree. So uh, I'm interested as well. How big is your team right now? We are 22 people strong and we're, we're looking for a couple more actively. Okay. And, and can you tell me about the structure, how this is all split? Sure. So we have a sales team, we call them partnerships. We have account management team, we call partner success management. We have accounting, marketing, finance, I'm sure I'm missing some logistics is gonna is a huge component as well. Right. Okay. And customer yeah. service. Yeah, I'm sure there's more. And is it something that's um, sort of organically grown um, over time, or did you always know you had to have a strong sort of um, foundation of core staff? It's a good question, Christopher. And it started with my co-founder Michael Bowen and I. And the the two of us virtually wore every single hat in the organization. And we were moonlighting, actually. We had traditional corporate America day jobs while we were juggling speakeasy until it grew enough that we were able to jump full time. And then we, we started hiring based on, really based on need. Where were our biggest areas for improvement? Hey, initially, the first was development. So the third full-time employee we brought on, Christian King, is one of our lead developers. And that's because Michael and I come from data, sales, marketing backgrounds. Well, we were a tech company. So we made sure that we brought on uh, the best that tech can offer. And so we started growing growing that division. 
And then once we had too many partners, then all of a sudden we had to bring on additional account management support. And it's really been more about organic growth and where we really want the strength of the company to be. And so we knew technology. And so those were one of our first hires. And as Speakeasy has scaled and evolved, we didn't want to just be a tech company like Drizzly and Reserve Bar and a lot of the other players in the space. A major focus for us is actually on fulfillment and logistics. And so that's been a team that we've been focusing on building, which is really unique in the space. And what's the next steps for Speakeasy Co? What's the future plan? Right now, we're just trying to get our feet under ourselves from a crazy year. I think a lot of companies in the e-commerce space are in a similar boat. And so we've just been trying to get brands live as fast as humanly possible. So the past year uh, for us has not been focused nearly as much on innovation, but we made the tough decision that we just wanted to get brands live so their businesses didn't go under. And we've been able to do finally hire to a point where we have enough bandwidth. And so for us, we're going to be really focusing on innovation and bells and whistles and features for the platform to help our partners grow. So we mentioned digital marketing services. That's more of a service, but that's something we're investing a lot of energy into. And through that, we're identifying different ways in which we can support our partners better. And one of the ideas that has emerged is subscriptions. And that's going to be a service or a feature that's coming out here very soon, along with better access to the data and different tools in order to, to maximize revenue at the end of the day. Brilliant. So we're, we're going to wrap up very soon, Josh. Just a few more questions before you go, and uh, I'll let you carry on with your day. Um, I, I always ask normally um, for the entrepreneurship series of this podcast, um, I ask my guests if they can give me a few resources um, for the listeners, maybe some books you recommend or um, maybe other podcasts or any other resources that, that you use to sort of build your day. Absolutely. So I'd say The Lean Startup is kind of the gospel. It's mm. a, a book that I think all entrepreneurs have to read. Have you read it, Christopher? I haven't. I'm Googling it now. So. <laughs> yes. Highly recommend The Lean Startup. I would say most of the entrepreneurial tricks and philosophies that I subscribe to come out of that book about the white glove service when you're initially launching and minimal viable product and listening to the data and micro experiments and constantly testing and failing fast, all were, were born from, from that book. And then a lot of the other podcasts and books that I listen to are, are somewhat tangential to that. And so if there was one thing I would leave with listeners, it would be to check out The Lean Startup. Brilliant. I'll make sure that book's in the show notes for everyone. And um, what's your normal uh, daily routine? Are you normally an early riser and get straight to it? Or do you have any, uh, any productivity hacks that you have to have during the day? It's kind of funny. Everyone always says early bird gets a worm. That's not me. <laughs> I, I love my sleep and that's just the way that I operate. However, I, I tend to work a little bit later into the evening and the way that I'm able to stay fresh throughout the day, two things for me, meditation and then focus on uh, exercise. And so making sure I'm getting the blood moving 
and I'm able to disconnect and unplug to stay mentally fresh and creative. I think that there's a fallacy that you need to be chained to your keyboard and working every second of every day, but a healthy balance must be, you must strike a healthy balance. Otherwise you're not gonna be as creative and as fresh and as motivated and as energetic. And when we're trying to revolutionize an antiquated industry, we need to attack it with vigor. We can't go in there um, and limp into meetings. We can't be working with partners that are frustrated and floundering without confidence and conviction. And so for me, I make sure that I have a, a little bit of work-life balance. Don't get me wrong, I'm still working the crazy entrepreneurial hours, but I'm making sure I have time to focus on important relationships and my health. And that's what really keeps me going. Brilliant. Um, articulated very well too. Um, do you mind if we talk about the meditation before you go? I'm interested so much because um, it's something I've started to pick up recently as well. Um, I use Let's the, do it. I use the app Headspace, um, which is pretty useful, um, but I'm trying to, to be a bit more effective. I kind of get stuck. I do like a week's worth of meditation, just like 10 minutes in the morning, and then I'll sort of have a week off. So I'm not being very consistent. Um, what do you use? Do you use any apps right now? I actually tend to just listen to one of the Spotify meditation playlists. Mm. I put it on a timer. Usually 10 minutes is my number right now, Christopher, mm. especially because then I can do it multiple times throughout the day if needed and have more breaks as opposed to one extended break. And I just focus on my breathing. Even before rolling into a podcast like this, I might take 30 seconds to do a breathing exercise, focusing on long inhales, and long exhales. And that'll really help clear my mind and center myself. And what I might suggest in, if any of the listeners are struggling with commitment to meditation or really anything else, trying to buddy up. So at our company for Mental Awareness Month for Mindful May, if you will, we're doing a little competition. And it's not just about who's the winner, it's about trying to support everyone in the entire organization. And so everyone must log at least 120 minutes of activity, walking, running, meditation, any sort of mindful exercises. And at the end of it, if everyone has been able to achieve this level of uh, activity, we'll all receive a, a reward. So it's not just about a single winner, it's about supporting and buddying up and making sure everyone gets through it together. That's great. That's such a great way to, to work on the well-being of, of your team. Love it. Good. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I certainly learned a lot. Um, and I'm pre pretty sure the listeners did as well. Um, so, yeah, thank you for joining us, man. Thank you very much for having me, Christopher. And I hope to come back on again soon and talk about eclipsing 500 partners on the platform. <laughs> Hopefully very soon. Uh, one more question. Um, so obviously you work with a, a lot of drink partners. Um, you've been doing it a while now. But what is your drink of choice? What do you normally have? Mezcal is my drink of choice. Ah, okay, okay. Good choice. I love Mezcal. I know you've got Illegal Mezcal, right? As one of your brands. We, we don't actually work with Elegal Mezcal at this point, but we work with a ton of fantastic Mezcals. One of my favorites, Nosotros, they were actually part of the collaboration with Tesla. They have a terrific 
Reposado. Uh, mezcal is my fit, my spirit of choice, second to Reposados. And so No Sojos has terrific products. So I highly recommend checking them out. Perfect. I keep an eye out for it. Thank you, Josh. Enjoy your week and talk soon. Thanks, Christopher. You too.